Amen. Um, thank you, Jonathan. And thank you. I, I just, you know, let me introduce myself. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. And I, one of the things about church planters is, is, is they have recurring nightmares of coming to church and nobody being there because you kind of expect that one day you're going to show up and everybody's just going to have said, okay, we finally figured this guy out. He doesn't have any idea what he's doing. I'm, you know, nobody's going to come. And then a day comes along where you advertise that you're not going to have air. <laughs> And you think, it may just be me and my family, and Terry's got to be here because he's got to play the guitar, and Jonathan gets paid to be here too, so maybe he'll be, you know. So thank you for being here with us and sticking this out. It's fun to see bundles over here by the fan. There's one fan here that's going completely wasted because nobody's sitting by it, Um, but it it is neat. Uh, We will do the best we can to get you out of here uh, as fast as we can this morning. If you're from Memphis, Tennessee, uh, my friend David Smith, David, would you just kind of, he's right here in the middle, has brought a team from Memphis, Tennessee. They're going to be working in Eloise this week doing a vacation Bible school for a church uh, that we know and love there. Uh, so welcome to Florida in July. We thought we would just, you know, jump you right in. Um, so here we go. Okay. Uh, if you have a Bible and you'd like to uh, turn with me, you can. We're going to be looking at a, a couple of different passages this morning, uh, jumping all over the place, thinking about this theme of gentleness, it probably will be easier for you to just follow along in the in the insert that I've provided for you in your worship folder, or to just gawk at the screen behind me because the passages will be there as well. So continuing in our series of the fruit of the spirit, uh, this morning coming to gentleness, we'll read from Galatians from Galatians five then Galatians six, second Timothy two, first Peter three. Uh, So let's follow along together as we do this, beginning with Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul writing to the Galatians, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. From 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 22 through 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And then from first Peter, now. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Uh, this is God's word. Now, we're taking the summer to take a spiritual inventory of our lives by looking at what Paul calls 
<clears throat> the heart characteristics that Paul calls the fruit of the spirit in Galatians five. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's really amazing. Uh, what we've been learning that it, Paul has been teaching us that the evidence of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is not, Paul says, the extraordinary gifts of the spirit. In fact, in first Corinthians chapter 13, he says that it's possible to have the gift, gifts like tongues and prophecy and leadership and to be a spiritual zero, literally to be nothing that the fruit of the spirit is not the extraordinary gifts it's not moral achievements either. It's not church attendance or giving away your money to help the poor or serving at the homeless shelter downtown. You can do all of that, Paul says, with selfish motivations. And at the end of all of it, you are, again, a spiritual zero. You're nothing. No, Paul, Paul says the fruit of the spirit is a heart that has been supernaturally transformed by the gospel at its root, healed of its selfishness so that now there's love and joy and peace and patience Kindness and goodness and faithfulness and this morning, gentleness. And so in many ways, as we come to this topic of gentleness this morning, I'm just struck that in many ways, this heart characteristic, this gentleness Paul talks about is one of the most surprising to me in this list of all the things. Really, think about it. Of all the things that Paul could have chosen to say, this is a distinguishing mark of the spirit in your life. He chose gentleness and that that just fascinates me. So this morning, we need to take these passages and kind of jump around a little bit, do a little exegesis, and do three things this morning. I want to talk three in three areas to you this morning. The first, I want to talk about the model of gentleness. Secondly, the counterfeit of true gentleness. And then thirdly, the source of gentleness. So where does it come from? So the model, and we're going to look at Jesus' life and see how he perfectly models what we're going to what we're going to talk about being gentleness. Secondly, the counterfeit of true gentleness, or what is the what what are what are the, the dual heart realities that have to be in place? And if you see on your outline on the other side of the page, I put for number two, courageous humility. If you want to be anal, really, it should be courageous compassion. Uh, I, I did the outline two weeks ago, so you might want to change that if that's just where you are. And then thirdly, how do we get it? Where does it come from? How does the gospel produce the fruit of gentleness in our lives? And so those three things this morning. And let's just start first by looking at the gentle king and seeing how Jesus models for us what we mean by gentleness. OK, so. So the best way to do this is just to show how gentleness is made known to us in Jesus. OK, the spirit that Paul is talking about here is the spirit of Jesus. So the fruit that the spirit is bearing in our lives is the fruit of Jesus's life and ministry. And so therefore, the true definition and the true expression of the fruit Paul lists here are found in him. Now, think about this with me for just a minute. I'm doing my best Pentecostal preacher impersonation this morning. There you go. Praying for a move of the spirit. Now, when the king of kings chose to come into the world, he didn't come sitting on a throne. He wasn't born into a wealthy family. Uh, you know, he didn't come wielding his power. He was born into an ordinary peasant home. He worked a nine to five job and he lived the better part of his life in utter obscurity. And Isaiah, the prophet, if you read from Isaiah chapter 53, he says it this way. He says of Jesus foretelling the coming of the Messiah, that there would be nothing majestic or beautiful about him that would draw our attention to him. Now, just think about that. That the most powerful, the most beautiful one in all of the universe, the one who, who has all majesty and all authority and all dominion, he became plain and weak and poor. And that's how God chose to reveal himself in Jesus. <clears throat> And that says something 
about the kind of God he is. And it's so opposite, isn't it, to the way things work in our culture? I mean, think about it. the lives of the powerful and the beautiful in our culture. If you turn on E, you know, or, or MTV or, or something, you'll see that the lives of the powerful and the beautiful in our culture are carefully calculated to put their beauty and to put their power on display for everybody to see. But it's the exact opposite with God, the God of the Bible, who's truly powerful. He hides his glory in Jesus. I mean, when you re- when when he revealed himself to humanity in the person of Jesus, he wasn't the kind of person. Jesus wasn't the kind of person who you would walk away from encounter with him and say, wow. You know, wow, isn't he? You know, Je- <clears throat> excuse me. Jesus was the kind of person that you'd have an encounter with him and you'd walk away and you'd say, no, he's not much to look at. I mean, you know, just kind of. Now, you see, a lot of people, if you read the New Testament, a lot of people didn't get Jesus. Because their minds were loaded up with all kinds of expectations about who Messiah would be and what he would be like. And that's why I put these two prophecies, the one from Zephaniah. Was it from Zephaniah? Was it from Zephaniah? Am I right? I can't remember your call to worship. Zechariah, thank you. And the one from Isaiah chapter 52, because they're so instructive to help us understand what the scripture is teaching us about the kind of Messiah Jesus is. And that prophecy, Zechariah, is really confusing if you look at it, if you, if you come to think about it, because it speaks of this great king who would come to make wars end. He would make war against his enemies and crush them and set up his kingdom in the entire earth. Now, when you read that, you know, when you sit with that and read it, what kind, what what certain kind of person comes to mind? You know, you get a certain picture in your mind, don't you, of what kind of king it would take to pull that off. He would have to be powerful and wise. And you go back to it. Thanks, Jonathan. And just. You know, he would be a military hero, a man of great valor right i mean that's what you would think and then you go down to the end of the passage and you read that the defining characteristic of this king is he's humble he doesn't ride a war horse he rides a donkey and that's just humiliating and when the gospel writers because the gospel writers in jesus's triumphal entry into jerusalem they pick up this this prophecy and they apply it to jesus and when they do they take the word humble there and they they use a different word they use the word gentle he's a gentle king It's true. It really is true. Jesus came into the world to conquer and to destroy his enemies and to set up God's kingdom. He came to do battle against Satan and to rescue us from sin and death. He was a man of great valor. And Mark Driscoll, who's a pastor in Seattle, uh, he's just great. And he he says in Relevant Magazine in 2007, and it's rather irreverent, I would say, but nevertheless, shock value. Mark Driscoll says, some people want to recast Jesus as a limp-wrist hippie in a dress with lots of product in his hair who drank decaf and made pithy Zen statements about life while shopping for the perfect pair of shoes. He says, but in Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and a commitment to make somebody bleed. You like that? And then he goes on to say, now that's a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I can't worship a guy I can beat up. You know, and that's right. That's absolutely right. He came as a great hero to fight against the powers of darkness on our behalf. But the prophecy of Isaiah says he did it 
by not making a big deal out of himself. Isaiah 42, he did it quietly. He didn't raise his voice. He did it behind the scenes, you know, by being hidden, so to speak. And his character was such that he was accessible. You know, he wasn't harsh. He wasn't impatient. He didn't break the bruised reeds or quench the, the faintly burning wicks of society. He was gentle and kind and tenderhearted and humble. He was a friend to sinners, you know, and losers and outcasts. And maybe the best way to say it is, is John, in the book of Revelation, at the very end of our scriptures, calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the lamb of God. I mean, he is a lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. In other words, there's something fierce about him. And if you think about Jesus, he never backed away from a confrontation. He never cowered in fear. He spoke the truth uh, to people and offended people on purpose because it was what they needed. He went toe to toe with demoniacs and other strange and dangerous people and never lost his composure. And people hated him and tried to kill him and he never ran away. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he was also the lamb of God. He's gentle and kind and humble and children loved him and he always held them and blessed them. And sinners and social outcasts wanted to be around him. I mean, this is this is who we say we serve. And so I would say to you, that's very important. It's very important that we get that model of who Jesus was and who God revealed himself to be in Jesus. Because when you talk about gentleness, OK, and that that's that we're to be gentle people. When you talk about gentleness, here's what happens. Is people immediately think wimpy or cowardly, and that could not be further from the truth. Okay, gentleness means very clearly an absence of harshness or rudeness or a kindness and a tolerance of others in their struggles. It means to be like this. One commentator says it means to be mellow, not strict and austere, not harsh and critical. And what you see in each of these passages. So coming to these passages now, what you see in each of them is that they call us to gentleness but what I, I was talking to somebody yesterday and I mentioned this, but, but when it, they call us to gentleness, it is always in the context. Just notice in all three, it's always in the context of conflict and confrontation. And so in, in Galatians 6, it's brothers, if any of you are caught in transgressions, you who are spiritual restore, but do so in a gentle spirit. Right. And in Second Timothy, it's that you're going to have opponents and you must not quarrel with them. But you you teach and patiently endure and correct with gentleness. And then in first Peter three, it's you know, we're in the middle of a hostile world that hates our faith. And we are called to give a defense, a reasoned argument for the truth of what we believe in the face of great opposition culturally, but to do so with gentleness. So part of our expectation of what it means for us to live in community with one another and to live as salt and light in the world in which Jesus has placed us as his people has to be that there are going to be times when loving one another and loving the city that God has put us in means we are willing to speak the truth in love. You see that? Now look a little bit closer. Look a little bit closer in each of these passages with me. And let's go to Galatians 6 first and just bear this out, okay? And in Galatians 6, Paul says there are going to be times when we fall into sin and we need to be restored. And that word restore there, it means it literally means to reset a bone that's been broken. And so Paul means that there's something broken in each of us that we often get sick or we get dislocated and we need to be reset. And the only way that happens is if those who are spiritual 
intervene and restore. If friends, if, if we have friends who are willing to move in and confront the brokenness and to address it and to speak the truth to it. But to do it gently. You know, in Second Timothy, look there and just see some of the language that Timothy uses or that Paul uses when writing to Timothy. He says, especially down there in verse 26, which is just absolutely frightful, to be honest with you. He says it's possible that we become ensnared and captured by the devil. That There are powers of evil in the world that are real, that we have an enemy that is actively seeking to allure us into the traps that he has set to capture us. And it's true. You might read this and think, okay, the passage seems to be talking about unbelievers, but that's the problem. The church is full of people who think they're believers who are really under the influence and the dominion of spiritual forces of evil. And that's scary. There's an enemy who prowls like a lion seeking to devour us. He set traps and snares by which he wants to capture us and bring us under the authority and the dominion of his rule. And And Paul is saying the only way we can get out of the snares that he set for us is if we're willing to correct and to teach and to confront one another and to bring one another do you see the way he says it to bring one another to the knowledge of the truth verse 25 that they may come to their senses and escape okay and i've already said it now first peter 3 and in first peter 3 in context we live in a godless world that is antagonistic to our faith and it's our responsibility to give a defense and we have to be willing to confront the idolatries of our culture and to fight for the truth, even when it's unpopular. And so Peter says, he says, be ready always. Always be prepared, verse 15, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for your hope. And so I just want to say that part of what we understand, if we are going to be people who are captured by love, if we're going to be people who live faithfully in community with one another and in the city that God has put us, part of the expectation is going to be that we're going to have to learn the skill of moving in you know, confrontation and be willing to speak the truth in love. And that's the strategy, you see. Not quarreling, but teaching, correcting, to give a defense. To give the gift of honesty. And we've got to give one another permission to be honest. And I, we were with some friends on vacation. And they were just sharing with us, and it was just a really sad thing. They were sharing with us how badly uh, damaged the relationships in their family have have become over the last year, uh, and these are these are these are godly people. They're kind. They're 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 trying to figure out how to love. And so we were just like, well, why, you know, why is that? What's the deal with that? And 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 he, just very matter matter of factly, he says, you know, um, we're just too honest. I mean, we've got to give one another permission to be honest. And the reason is that we don't like being told. We, the reason we can't do that is we don't like being told we're wrong. It's offensive to our flesh. And, and so we don't like this part of it. But you see, the goal in all of this, if you look there in 2 Timothy 2, the goal in all of the way that, that, that Paul and Peter are calling us to relate to one another here, in verse 25 of 2, Peter, 2 Timothy 2, the goal is that in, in our willingness to move in and to correct with gentleness and to teach and patiently endure, is that God may grant repentance. And, I, and we just need to bring into our our minds, the idea that repentance is not a one-time deal, that all of life is repentance. This is what Martin Luther taught, that we're constantly losing our way, that every one of us in this room, we're constantly giving in to temptation and adopting sinful patterns of living 
And so we need to be constantly calling one another to repentance. And I just want to say to you, there you go, get by that fan, that's good. From up here, I want to say to you, I need you to watch over my life and call me to repentance where I'm blind to my sin. I need that from you. And so this really helps us understand what true gentleness is, doesn't it? Because there are two errors, okay? Let's talk about this, and then we're going to conclude with how the gospel resolves this, and then we're going to be done, I promise. We're getting there. But there really are two errors that we can fall into uh, in dealing with this being called into conflict and confrontation for the sake of the gospel in one another's lives. What The first error is, is we can be cowardly, and we can selfishly avoid conflict. In other words, I want to say it this way. We can have compassion, but no courage, Okay. And you've got to figure out where you find yourself in this. But there are people who will never confront anybody because by temperament they're shy and insecure. And I want to say, I want to say this gently, <laughs> that's sin. It's not loving to see someone ensnared by the devil and not try to bring them to their senses. It's not loving to refuse to address the sin in one another's lives. But there's a second error. The first is, you know, you can just become cowardly and selfishly avoid conflict. You can have compassion without courage. But the second one is, is, is we can be harsh and we can be overly critical. In other words, we can have courage but no compassion. And there, there are other people, there's a second, you know, there are other people who have no problem confronting. Anybody ever met somebody like this? No? Come talk to me. I'll, I'll, I'll display it for you if you'd like that. It's a joke. Never mind. It's hot. We'll keep moving. Uh, no, there are people who have no problem confronting, no problem correcting others. But when they do it, they're rude or mean or abrasive. Now, in the Baptist circles that I grew up in, we called this the gift of prophecy. Can I get an amen, Faith Baptist Church people? Translation, I'm a prophet. I can be as rude and mean to you as I have to be because it's just it's my spiritual gift, which is funny. Because the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. But see, that's sin too. I mean, it's not love if the correction is harsh or has a tone of self-righteousness. And so here's what I want you to see. You see, compassion without courage isn't enough because it leaves sin unchallenged. But courage without compassion isn't enough either because it will lead us to be condescending with one another. And so we need both. We need both. We need courage. We need to be courageous we need God to come and produce courage in us. I remember talking to a pastor in India, and this whole morning reminds me of preaching in India with no air. I remember talking to a pastor in India, in southern India, in Tamil Nadu, where the state government passed an anti-conversion law, and the churches were told, if you preach the gospel, we will put you in prison. And we asked them, what are you going to do? And he says, we're going to preach the gospel. And I said, they're, you know, and one of the guys on our team said, they're going to put you in prison. He said, then we'll preach the gospel in prison. You know, I've had diarrhea for three days because there's not going to be air in here this morning and nobody's going to come. This guy's going to go preach, you know, in prison. I'm a pansy. You know, we need that courage. You know. But not only that, we also we also need compassion. It's not love when it's it's only love when courage and compassion go together. And there are two kinds of people in the church. There are people who have compassion but no courage. And there are people who have courage but no compassion. And it's nobody has both. Nobody possesses both the courage to confront sin in others and the humility to do it gently. Nobody is compassionate and courage. 
And that's how you can distinguish true gentleness from counterfeit gentleness. Counterfeit gentleness is often just sweetness or mousiness, but it's really cowardice. It's really selfishness. And so now let's come to point number three and just conclude with how the gospel uh, resolves what we're dealing with here. Now, if you're not a Christian or if you're new to Christianity, I want to say this. If you grew up in our culture or if you would consider yourself an irreligious person, what we might might say, an irreligious person, the chances are your reflex is to never confront anybody because you see irreligion tends to train people in having compassion without courage. You just accept everybody. You know, you never insist on a moral or theological standard, but I want to say that's not right. It's not loving, okay? But if, like me, you grew up religious, then you probably have horror stories about conflict in your church or worse, in your family. Conflict over everything, you know, conflict everywhere over small things that don't even matter because religion tends to train people in having courage without compassion. It leads to a self-righteous attitude that that glories in controversy. You see, that's not right either. You see, the gospel, the gospel, as we understand it, isn't religion and it's and it's not irreligion. It's neither. It's not irreligion. It's not religion either. It's something entirely different. And only the gospel can produce in us the gentleness that Paul's talking about here. And this is what Peter's teaching in 1 Peter 3. So look there with me again for just a minute, because I want you to see this. He's saying there, go down to verse, you know, verse 15. He's saying, um, and I'm just going to paraphrase. He's saying, be ready, you know, to give a defense. He's saying that they're probably going to hate you, but be willing to suffer for doing good. And then let's look at verse 18. He says in verse 18, for Christ also suffered. Okay, so be ready, give a defense. Understand, they're probably going to hate you, so be willing to suffer for doing good. And then in verse 18, he begins it by saying, for Christ also suffered. Now, in the, in the Greek, what Paul is doing there is he's giving the reason. He's, he's showing us where the motivation or where the energy to do this comes from. How can you be a person who's willing to suffer for doing good, who can give a defense even if it's going to cost you persecution and maybe death? You have to go back and you have to see how Christ has suffered. So the energy to do this and to love like this and to be willing to be misunderstood or to have people be angry with you, it comes from seeing how Jesus has loved you by suffering for your sins. And so the question we have to ask is this. What do we learn in the gospel that can mold us into the kind of people who are courageous enough to confront sin, but compassionate enough to do it with gentleness? And just look there in verse 18. And the gospel, as Paul, excuse me, as Peter puts it forth here for us, is just caught in this little phrase that for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You see, God is holy. Sin has created a debt that is owed to him and the payment of sin is blood. And what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us is that instead of blood being required of us, Jesus shed his blood in our place. That he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what this reality does is it really goes after the things we've been talking about this morning. First, the gospel secures us into courage. And so if you're struggling to find courage, okay, if that's you, okay, on the continuum of this thing, if you're struggling to find courage, if you find it hard to love other people by confronting them, and most of the time it's out of fear, I want you to know that. It's usually out of fear of rejection or deep insecurity that you feel. You need their approval to meet your emotional needs, and you need it so badly. Now, hear this. Oftentimes, 
We need it so badly that we would selfishly choose to keep people's approval and let them go on destroying themselves in their sin. Wow. The problem is that we come into these interactions emotionally needy, seeking to meet our emotional needs in the relationship, and what it does is it destroys our capacity to love. And so when we come to truly believe in the gospel, here's what happens. The gospel secures us to such a degree that our emotional needs can be met in our relationship with God And that frees us to love. You see, the more I'm convinced of his love for me, the more I know he delights in me and approves of me, the less I need you or the city that I live in to delight in me and approve of me. And that frees me to be able to give you exactly what you need, even if it's a rebuke. And that's exactly what the gospel does, because it reminds us, as Peter says, that Jesus has died for our sins and satisfied the wrath of God That was against us in the gospel. We're forgiven. We're cleansed. And I love this phrase. If you see there at the end of verse 18. And Peter says we've been brought home to God. We are righteous. Jesus died the righteous for the unrighteous. And if your faith is in him. The father declares you righteous. Because he is righteous. And he adopts you into his family. And there's no power in heaven. Or on earth that can separate you from his love. And here's what that does. The gospel secures me. In the father's love. And it creates the courage to confront sin in others. I don't have to be worried about their reaction. You know, I can I can confront idolatry and sin in my city and I don't have to worry about the editorials that they'll write about me in the newspaper. The bad things they'll say about me because I already have God's approval. And that security links courage to my compassion and the two together bear the fruit of love. But if you find yourself on the other side, if you are struggling to find compassion, if you have the gift of prophecy. (laughs) If confrontation is not a problem for you, but doing it gently is, then most of the time I want you to know the harshness and even the impatience, because that's what it really is, I think. Most of the time it comes from a feeling of self-righteousness. If you're if there's harshness or if there's rudeness, it really is arrogance and you felt it. (coughs) I'm sure you have. The condescending air, the I'm better than you, and that gives me the right to treat you poorly. You know, and so selfishness, self-righteousness destroys love, too. And when we come to truly believe in the gospel of Jesus again, it humbles us out of our pride and arrogance because it reminds us that though we have the Father's love and delight and acceptance, it's not our own doing. The gospel reminds us that we are loved, yes, but even even though we're sinners, that Jesus Christ suffered for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. And if we are arrogant and self-righteous, we've forgotten the simple truth that Jesus only saves sinners. And here's what this does. In every conversation I go into, in every conflict or confrontation, I'm reminded that I'm a sinner. I'm just a sinner confronting another sinner and that whatever sin I might find in others, I'm guilty of that and far more. And even as I call my friends or the godless culture we live in to repent, I know that I need to repent too. And you see what that does? See what that does? It takes away any harshness. It takes away any rudeness or condescension. Humility, the the humility the gospel produces, takes links compassion to courage and the two together bear the fruit of love. And so, again, the security, the gospel provides security that links courage to my compassion. It provides humility. Humility that links compassion to my courage. 
and the two together bear the fruit of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, a willingness to not let people go on in their sin, but to love them enough to go after them in their sin and to correct and to teach and to rebuke and to give a reason defense, but to do it in gentleness so that God might be glorified, that he might bring them to repentance, that heaven might rejoice. This is, this, this is, this is the reality of what we're being called to here. And I don't know about you, I do this very poorly. Anybody else with me? So let's pray and ask the Spirit to come and begin to do this in our hearts. Would you pray with me this morning? Uh, Jesus, when I think about the way you lived, what a what a perfect model of this fruit of the spirit you were. I think about all of the controversy that you lived in, all of the confrontations with the religious leaders that you that you were forced to undergo, that even knowing that they wanted to kill you, you did not refuse to go up to Jerusalem, but you went straight into the fire and were never never backed away from speaking the truth and love to people because you you knew you knew it was the very means by which God grants repentance. And I even think of the last hours of your life as Judas, your friend, came to betray you and the way you gently spoke the truth to him, trying to recapture his heart and, and trying to produce repentance in him. And it was just beautiful. But Jesus also that you, even in your courage, you were compassionate, that your heart was tender to the needs of others, that you incarnated well into people's lives and you understood and knew what it was like to struggle with sin because you were tempted in every way as we are. And in you, in you alone, the beauty of courage and compassion came together in a life of love. And Jesus, we worship you, but we ask. We ask as your people who have been called to continue your mission in one another's lives and in the city in which you've placed us, that you would come and give to us your spirit and that the spirit might come to work in our hearts and bear the fruit of love, bear the fruit of gentleness in us, that the spirit would come and and give us eyes to see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus and that it would produce in us a deep security. That would secure us. Into courage and a deep humility that would humble us into compassion and that we would be people who can faithfully execute what you've called us to in these scriptures, and that it all would be to much glory for you. And so even now as we sing this song and contemplate what it means for us to, to cry out for you to save us, come and do this in our lives and in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.